Hello and welcome to Dusty's Hideaway. Dusty's Hideaway. I'm Dusty Limits and this is my podcast because that's what the world was really crying out for, wasn't it? Another fuck podcast. In this show, I will be interviewing some wonderful artists and asking them about their work, about what inspires them, and the surprising things about which they are passionate. This podcast, as always, is dedicated to Kira Knightley. Kira Knightley! Who inspired it? Today, my guest is a dear friend, actor, writer, cabaret artist, and creator of unforgettable characters. Please welcome the gorgeous Gareth Joyner! Hey, hello, 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 hello. Hello, Gareth. How are you? I am very well, although we've already covered this ground informally uh, before you hit record. So um, I'm just I'm peeling behind the curtain in the magic of podcasting there for you. Oh, you're like, it's like I've been discovered as, as the guy in The Wizard of Oz. Uh, <laughs> well, that's very apt for what we're going to talk about later, but I don't want to rush towards the end of the podcast. But I am going to tell the listener to put a pin in that because we'll get back to that. Oh, a little bit of foreshadowing. Where are you? Are you in London? I'm in London right now, yeah. In, in glamorous West Norwood. I don't mind divulging that much. I live right next to the cemetery. Oh. So, uh, yeah, that's nice, isn't it? I've had a constant reminder of how things might go throughout the whole pandemic. So that's uh, all right. Yeah, no, and on the day we're recording, we've got the the last gasps of sunshine for the year. So um, it's quite nice. But I cannot wait for the season of mists and mellow fruitfulness and, and, and death. Because growing up in Australia, my mood, my general mood, never matched the weather. It was autumn. Autumn is the season where the world seems to match how I feel inside. I understand that. I can. I can go with that. I can. I think I. I, I change with the seasons myself. I was in Australia earlier this year for the first time, and I was deliriously happy with the sunshine. Like something, something just clicked within me, and I. I tanned for the first time as well. It was almost as if my skin was like, no, yes, this is where this is where you're meant to be. But I really enjoyed the heat wave of about a fortnight to a month ago. Yeah, I found it excruciating, but I was not. I was designed for the, the the mists and the fogs and the the highlands. I think I don't think I'm really suited to anything above about twelve degrees centigrade. Anything outside of a Scottish widow's advert. <laughs> I've always wanted to be the Scottish widow. I don't see why you couldn't. <laughs> no, Identity politics is all the rage. You you be a Scottish widow if you want to be. So, for the listeners at home who might not be familiar with you and your work, and I'd be surprised if that's the case, but you never know. I have some pro forma questions for you. Are you ready? Oh, I was born ready. Question number one. How would you describe your artistic work in one sentence? Now, it can be a long sentence, but I want one sentence and I want lots of adjectives and adverbs. Ah, okay. This is at the beginning of my sentence. This is me uh, trying to buy uh, thought time. Um, I would describe my artistic practice as being the getting away with playing dress up as a living. <laughs> Does that work? Yeah. I mean, it's very self-deprecating. It reminds me of that famous quote from, I think it was Peter O'Toole. He just won some award or something. And he said, oh, I don't know why you're making such a fuss. You know, acting is just farting about in tights. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I would greatly relate and agree with that uh, statement. Uh, Felix Lafrique said something the other day. I went to their book launch. Yeah, so they've got a book coming out called um, Serving Face, and uh, and it features uh, 20 drag performers in it, and I was featured in as one of them. And someone asked them when they first did drag, 
and Felix said, well, I mean, which, which time, the first time or the second time? Because I was doing it as a kid. I was dressing up and I was in the dressing up box and everything. And then it was sort of beaten out of me by societally. And then, uh, and then there was my second starting of drag when I did it in my 20s, sort of uh, consciously. And I thought that was very interesting. So, uh, so I think the same thing. I think uh, my work is just an extension of how I used to play as a child, really. So many artists would relate to that story mm. because it is beaten out of you and you are discouraged from being expressive and creative and and polymorphous. And that polymorphous perversity, I think is the phrase, uh, yeah, gets discouraged. But in fact, it, it's, it's the essence of what it is to sort of be in, in a state of becoming. And I've already started using pretentious existential language. So I'm going to stay no. away from that and get to the next pro forma question. What do you think oh. you're best known for? Oh, it's Myra, definitely, um, which is both <laughs> a blessing and a curse. Yeah, so uh, Myra Dubois. Uh, Myra is a, a club singer from the north of England with sort of delusions of grandeur uh, and delusions of her own capabilities and a, a self-belief that is cast iron. And um, she's been working on the cabaret circuit and the gay circuit and dipped her toes into the comedy circuit over sort of 12 years. She started on the burlesque circuit and, and she's sort of the breadwinner, really. I, I, I do other things, but um, she is the one that is uh, the most popular. She's the one who's been on the telly more than once. She's the one that's been on the telly. Not, not quite that many more times than once, although you'd think it from the way she goes on about it, but yes. She's bigging up her CV. We all do it. Why not? <laughs> My old acting CV, this is going back a very long time. I don't want to say how long. Oh, the number of accents I claimed I could do was just outrageous. Oh, my word. I don't think I've looked at mine. There's one on Spotlight or something. I don't know what accents I claim to do, actually. I must go and look at that. <laughs> Correct it in case of, uh, yeah, miscommunication. So what you do is, roughly in your own words, uh, you get away with dressing up and playing about and... Yeah, I, I, I come up with these characters and I like to create the little worlds in which they live. I mean, they're all, all of them. There's Myra Dubois, who I play. There's Frank Lavender, who I play. There's Myra's sisters, Rose, who my friend Lucy plays. And then there's a, a bunch of offstage characters. There's Myra's spiritual guru, Malcolm. And there's Myra's little nibbling, Levi. And then there's, who's the other one? Oh, Thomas, Myra's number one fan slash stalker and, and these characters all sort of exist within what I refer to privately as myself as the MDU that's not me having my own pretensions of grandeur I just uh, in my, I call it the Myra Dubois universe and I just create this little world which is sort of a, a sort of rose-tinted fictionalized vision of a, a northern working class past that perhaps never existed and they take all kinds of influences and cues from my own northern working class upbringing and I just play around with them really. I'm absolutely fascinated by this idea of the Myra Dubois universe because I'm a big fan of the Marvel Comics universe. Sure. And now I'm just picturing like the spin-off. So there'd be like three Myra films uh, but then there'd be spin-off ones like Ant-Man but you know so it'd be all about Levi. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Frank Lavender, which was a bit dark, like Joker. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I'd really like, because uh, it's funny you should say that, because it is one of the things, I have lots of projects that I want to do with them. And for the longest time, it's just been 
the main thing I've been able to get to do is just have Myra on the stage. Uh, but the lockdown has been within this specific context uh, was great because I got to do a, a weekly stream that was uh, just Myra. And I got to introduce all these other elements that had so far only been referred to. And uh, because I didn't have to go on stage in front of a bunch of drunk people and just sing songs they already know because that's the limit of their attention capacity. So I found the lockdown creatively very liberating and I was able to explore these avenues. And one of the things I want to do is a Frank Origins comic. And that's and that's all I do. I just amuse myself with this like little collection of people that I've fictionalized. And I even have it does borrow greatly from comic book culture because I would love to do alternate universe versions of them, you know, like and things like that. And I've also had an idea that Myra's not the first Myra. There have been other Myras throughout history, oh. like that she's a, an entity like Loki from the mask that occupies people. So, um, but this is all in my own head for my own amusement. I that I get away with playing dress up and I get away with just amusing myself. I just try and keep myself entertained. And if other people have if other people suffer collateral amusement, that's fine, but um it's mostly just me. So uh, this sort of has begun to answer my next question. How did you get into this line of work? Now, was there some kind of formative, inspiring experience when you were very small, or was it more of a gradual slide? And in that case, what was the gateway drug? I think it was a gradual slide over years, although from your question, it, it brought two things to mind. There was uh, the first time I ever saw a pantomime dame. I remember being about, how old would I have been? About maybe four or five. And um, I, I, I can't remember the whole pantomime, but I can remember that uh, Widow Twanky came on stage and she had a, I suppose, like a market stall on her back that she wheeled on and it had all the washing powder on it. And I just remember that visual making a really strong impact. And then from that moment on, whenever I went to a pantomime, it was always the dame or the ugly sisters that I was drawn to. So being as young as four or five onwards and being drawn to that kind of brash cartoon hyper representation of gender it just it appealed to me you know and then the the first time I remember I used to be in the the cubs the um, you know the Baden Powell sort of dib 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 dob 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 thing and they have a Lord's Lord Mayor's Day Parade in Rotherham and I was asked to recite the Lord's Prayer and because I was one of the few people in the cubs that went to Sunday school I knew the Lord's Prayer and uh, so I recited it. And I remember everyone talked about it. They must have just, you know, been talking to each other about how loud I was like, oh, my word, can't he shout? But but I heard I was just being commended on a performance. So I was uh, that was the first time I remember performing something and being addicted to that sort of thing. And then I joined Amateur Dramatics. And, you know, if there was a chance to show off, I usually embraced it. And then when I was about 19, I worked in a pub and they asked me to host the pub quiz. So it wasn't a performance, but I was talking on the microphone to people and engaging with a, a crowd. And, and then Myra happened. So, um, so yeah, it was sort of very gradual, but I, I'd find it very hard to pinpoint a moment where I went, oh no, oh no that's when it started. Yeah. I was chatting with Miss Divine yesterday and, and she was talking about, again, being very small and doing something involving the local church. Um, but yeah, there was this interesting thing that re- religion is so often very performative and theatrical. And I think a lot of us with a religious background, something connected quite early on. But, but maybe, as you say, it was just a chance to show off. 
I think, you know, but I think there's something in it. There was a, a funny, there's, a, there's an anecdote attached to a, a Christmas nativity at the church one year. And I was given the role of Santa because I had questioned the existence of God. <laughs> and I, I just think that is su- such a weird, and it's only in adult life that I've looked back at that and thought, I was punished for asking questions by being given a secular role in a church play. That is fucked up. But what a great what a great way to encourage a budding atheist. <laughs> I'm sorry, you can't you can't be, you know, Joseph in the Nativity, but you can be an equally fictional character. Yeah, no, you can be you can be Santa. You think on that, you know, like <laughs> and this photo still exists of me and I, I was wearing my actually this is also an early example of transvestism because I remember God, what was her name? I can't remember, but the daughter of the woman who used to babysit me uh, had a red coat and I wore her red coat as Santa. So little transvestite Santa in the school play. <laughs> um, so, so moving on to other things that are spooky, supernatural and possibly completely vacuous. Uh, what is your star sign slash Patronus? And does that mean anything to you or is it just a load of old nonsense? I don't have a Patronus, no, because um, I'm not... No, I, I was indifferent to Harry Potter before it was cool. So, um, but I am a Gemini, and I have to admit that I am a hypocrite because I am very sort of usually level-headed. A level-headed agnostic is how I would possibly describe myself. But then when it comes to star signs, I very much re- uh, identify with the Gemini, and I very much see myself in the traits of a Gemini. And recently, when they tried to shift the star star signs i took it quite personally i'm very comfortable in my gemini identity the two of us are very happy here yeah i i I understand that's hypocritical but this is the same person that you know enjoys bacon and milk but also you know proclaims to love animals so (laughs) i think that's understandable though i think everyone in the most the most level-headed agnostic person as it were has to have some elements of whimsy in their life i doubt you know, I don't take star signs particularly seriously, but sometimes talking about your star sign is a great conversation opener with someone you've just met and with whom you don't know whether you have anything in common. And I, I think we're allowed to have that kind of playtime. I wouldn't base any major life decisions on astrology, um, but I certainly... sure I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't not enter into a romantic situation with someone based on when they were born. But similarly, if I meet another Gemini, we always exchange a look, you know. And there's there's always like uh, conversationally. I'm not saying we can sense each other, but they, we always share a look. And there's there's some people, you know, like Julian Clary is a Gemini, Ian McKellen is a Gemini, Paul O'Grady is a Gemini. So there's something about um, gays who dress up <laughs> born. Born in that sort of time period, calendar, I don't know. But I understand it's not a science. I think, like you say, it's a whimsy and a folly to be indulged. Exactly. I, I remember years ago when there was yet another attempt to create kind of new zodiac, like we, like one wasn't enough, and, and it was all about moon signs, and I discovered I was the same moon sign as Liza Minnelli. And for oh. my teenage self, that was all the validation I needed. That was basically a sign from the stars and the moon saying, it's okay, you're cool, you're good. Okay, yeah. this is the most tenuous link ever, but I'm going to do it anyway. We've moved on from the star signs to... The Daily Star. What do you make of this headline from today's Daily Star? Dennis Nilsson. My psychic dog knew I was a wrong'un. 
Um, well, you know, I think it, that you say tenuous link. I think this is quite linked to the star sign thing because I think a whimsical belief in these kind of things uh, is very appealing, even to me. Like, I, I have a dog. I have a whippet called Vera. I communicate with her. <laughs> like, you know, I talk to her. She looks at me. I interpretate those looks as, as messages and we converse in that way. I became quite fluent in Vera over lockdown. But again, I understand I wouldn't take it too seriously. If Vera came and jumped on my settee and tapped on my leg three times, I wouldn't indicate that to mean that a serial killer lives at number three, you know. Uh, but this is Dennis Nilsson's actual dog, who apparently would shy away from him when he was about to go into one of his homicidal phases. Um, they are very perceptive. Right, I'm going to caveat this now because people will tweet in, but um, I'm not a scientist. I uh, am not a biologist. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but dogs are very, very perceptive. And I'm not saying that um, that he was, that the dog knew that Dennis was murderous. But for example, Annabelle, you know Miss Annabelle Sings? You know Miss Annabelle Sings, right? Yes. Uh, well, she has a cat called Dexter, and I was staying with her in Dexter last year at the Edinburgh Fringe. Do you remember the Edinburgh Fringe? Um, I've heard tale of it. Yeah, it was a thing. And um, I was staying with Annabelle in Dexter, and when me and Annabelle... Annabelle had a Sega Mega Drive, and so we used to play old uh, Sonic games on the Mega Drive in the evening. And whenever we picked up the controls for the Mega Drive, after about two minutes, the cat would go apeshit. It would cartwheel around, it'd scratch for attention, he'd want to jump on everything. And after a while, I, I said, and again, I'm not a scientist, but I thought, like, I wonder if we're letting off playful pheromones because we were playing a game and the cat picked up on that and the cat was like oh great we're playing so if Dennis Nielsen's dog (laughs) picked up on you know some sort of brooding angst or whatever scent people give out when they're about to commit murder because we must do you know it's all science isn't it it's chemicals and pheromones and yeah so maybe the dog did pick up on that and would shy away from him I'm, I'm a massive dog lover, as you know, and I have. Uh, th- th- there is plenty of science to corroborate the idea that dogs do pick up scent particles mm. that correspond to to moods, to health conditions. Dogs can be trained to detect uh, certain health conditions just through scent. So, yeah, it's entirely plausible. It's it's just also quite bizarre. I think I think what we're, what we're, what was really amusing us is the sort of tabloid jargon, you know knew he was a wrong gun because it, it, it sort of now I can never say this word so maybe you can jump here and correct it Anth- anthropomorphizes Anth- anthro- anthropomorphize that's it anthropomorphizes uh, the dog <laughs> so it gives it gives the dog some sort of human quality or agency which dogs we know lack so the idea of a dog knowing someone's a wrong gun I did a little quotation finger marks there for our listeners then uh, I think that's where the amusement comes out of that. But I think it's entirely possible that a dog would shy away from you when you're about to commit murder. Bill Sykes's dog did on Oliver, so... And that's that's proof. That's, that's There's your proof. OK, final question. And this actually kind of harks back to the beginning of a conversation. If you had a superpower, part of your Myra Dubois universe, mm-hmm. what would it be? I want to say dancing, because even though dancing isn't a superpower, I cannot dance and like I just have no physical rhythm and I'm all angles and I'm all and I get so self 
conscious and just watching someone move freely and without hesitation or reserve and do it beautifully uh, like I just think it's the most wonderful thing so if I could have any talent that I don't currently possess it would be dancing if I was to and I think there's a connecting logic. I think the superpower I would most like is to be able to fly. And I think, again, it's a freedom of movement thing. It's a, it's a wanting to be able to just, to just go anywhere and do anything and, and have this. So, so I think maybe those two things are connected, but I would say flying. I was literally about to say, I bet your superpower would be flying. Yeah. You have wonderful flying dreams from time to time. And mm. the, the sense of exhilaration you have when you wake up from a flying dream is really something. It stays with you. Yeah, it's a shame we can't fly, but I'll, I'll get a jetpack. Okay, yeah. um, brilliant. But I do think we now feel as though we think we know you as Gareth the Superstar. Before we go to the next and more revealing section, it's time for Fun Fact Corner with Snuggles. Fun Fact Corner with Snuggles. Hello, dear. Hello, love. You are all right? Do you know what, though? It's actually kind of interesting. So, like, when you were talking about the nativity part of everything, it really spoke to me because I hated my nativity as well because I was made to play a sheep in the nativity. There's lots of room for those in religion. Apparently so. But the problem was I really wanted to play the shepherd and I wasn't allowed to get the shepherd part because at that age, I, was, I think I was about four, and I was too scared to, like, speak, so I wasn't able to speak properly. And then I, apparently, like, I think I, like, peed myself during the audition. And, um, yeah, and then they're like, oh, well, you tried, so you'll be a sheep, but we'll just keep you to the back of everything. And I got really annoyed that, like, my friend got to play the shepherd. Do you think they cast you as the sheep so they could encase you in an absorbent fabric? I th- <laughs> <laughs> it may have been a practical decision and no reflection on your talent. I mean, at that point, there was no talent there at all. My talent was to just cry <laughs> on stage on cue. <laughs> well, there was another nativity where I was cast as an angel and there was a line of angels at the back and I had to hold the hands of the two girls next to me because I kept lifting up my cassock. So I think it's a similar... A similar. The signs are there. If you dig deep enough into someone's childhood, everything's already mapped out. For those who are new here at Dusty Sideaway or who have just tuned in specifically for our darling Gareth Joyner... We like to dedicate a section of our podcast to something we call Fun Fact Corner with Snuggles, where I like to share a fun, interesting, and slightly useless fact with the world that in some way relates to our special guest. How that relates to them, however, is entirely up to you. Past fun facts have included restrictions of llamas in parks and spider penises. So today's fun fact is all about literature authors. Did you know that after the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, so Dusty, you would have been about 39 at that point, after, so this is all to do with Roald Dahl as well. So Roald Dahl was part of the RAF. After that, in 1942, only at the age of 25, he was posted to Washington DC to join the British Embassy as an assistant air attaché. Dahl became a spy working for MI6, and there he met Ian Fleming, and then they both created and did screenplays for his Bond films and all sorts of things. But Roald Dahl was a spy. Did you know any... Uh, yeah, I, I did know that. I also know he's a raging anti-Semite, which people seem to cover over. And and I, I, I like to mention that whenever uh, Roald Dahl, and if, through the influence of my friend Suze Kempner, because she does the same thing, every Roald Dahl day, she's always quoting tweets that uh, Roald Dahl said about the Jews. So whenever anyone likes to refer to Roald Dahl, they like it to be all like, 
rumbly, scrumptious chocolate factories and things like that. But he was a vicious anti-Semite right up until the end. He was not a nice man. It needs to be said, he was a horrible, horrible person. Yeah. I mean, you said he was basically a living Mrs. Trunchbull. Yeah, exactly. Most middle-class white people from Britain until maybe March of this year were absolute cunts. I, I can't even top that so I think that I think Fun Fact Corner's done for the day now <laughs> that's, 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 that's... <laughs> Fun Fact and that is staying in the edit lovely <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? Because the, the listeners will shortly find out that this does, in fact, relate to your secret love. Mm. So why don't we move briskly on to the secret love and then we can double back if we want to, OK? So thank you, Snuggles. That was indeed a fun fact. Every day is a learning day. And now it's time for Gareth's secret love. Secret love. In this segment, we discuss something that you're passionate about that isn't to do with your work and that might surprise people. If you do reference your work as a performer, I shall ring a small bell. That's my water glass. So, what is your secret love, Gareth Joyner? My secret love is children's literature, particularly children's literature of an age. So, vintage children. Vintage children's literature, yeah. What are we calling vintage here? Well, I mean, that's a subjective term, isn't it? Uh, Roald Dahl is a little modern for me. He, uh, I, I kind of like um, your sort of turn of the century, Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, that kind of era of, um, of sort of whimsical, fantastical sort of children's literature. Nothing as serious as C.S. Lewis, because that, that takes a little bit too much engagement. I, mean, I, I suppose it's just because these were some stories that I happened across at a certain age, and they've stayed with me ever since. But yeah, I've got like editions and editions and editions of Peter Pan. Peter Pan's my favourite one. For example, you mentioned C.S. Lewis. So when I was very, very, very tiny, um, I remember sort of lying in bed with my mum and she would read me The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe. And, and that was a very important thing to us, I think. So were you kind of read these stories or did you discover them yourself? Um, it's hard to say. Um, Peter Pan, I came to through the Disney film, as I'm sure many people did, which is, you know, not an... I think I think Disney gets a, a, a bum rap as storytellers. I mean, we can criticise them as capitalists, but as, as, as artists, they usually do employ the best people and pick the best stories. I think they're very good so- storytellers, so I'm quite pro-Disney. And, and this idea that Disney somehow sanitised fairy tales, I find to be a little bit erroneous um, because the the fairy stories of the Brothers Grimm started to be sanitised around about the Victorian era. So by the time they fell into the lap of Walt Disney, they the, the ugly sisters no longer cut their toes off and danced on hot coals. That had already gone, you know. And I would see Disney as being a, a natural continuation of telling the same stories over and over again. You could have, you know, the Grimm brothers and Walt Disney and then whoever is in the next century, you know. So I I, I came on to Peter Pan when I... I came on to Peter Pan? (laughs) I happened upon Peter Pan uh, when I was a kid and my grandparents went on holiday to Turkey and they bought me back a pirate VHS of Peter Pan from Turkey. Now, I remember being told that it was a pirate video and then my understanding of video piracy was films that had pirates in them because Peter Pan has pirates in them. So, and that lasted until I was maybe 13. 
<laughs> so I got really into that. And in about when, when I was little, in maybe '92, um, there was a, an a ice arena tour of Peter Pan on ice. Uh, World of Disney, it was called, and uh, and I went to see that, and I was absolutely captivated by it. And then I saw Hook with. Oh, what's his name? Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman in it. And that introduced me to the book because I didn't know that Peter Pan was a book until I saw Hook. Uh, uh, Because uh, Maggie Smith's character, Wendy, she refers to the book and she has the illustration. So then I sought the book out. And I just got into that ever since. I now prefer the book over the Disney version. I think it's such a rich text that it has stood the test of time. There's some elements in which it hasn't aged especially well. There's some wild racism about Native Americans in there. But uh, the, the notion of Pan as the spirit of youth and his connection to motherhood I just think it's so endearing and strong that it is still open to interpretation to this day. Childhood is a very ambiguous time. Children don't understand a lot of the world that they're experiencing and they want that ambiguity reflected in what they're reading. It's interesting you talk about Lewis Carroll as well because those books are not easy or obvious. They're full of very complex, contradictory and, again, whimsical ideas Mm -hmm. and children can absorb those. They, They... they get that she falls down a rabbit hole and she meets all these crazy creatures and that someone wants to chop off her head. Uh, But the Alice books are especially interesting because Alice, as the child protagonist, takes on the sort of level-headed adult role in in the stories and she spends a great deal of the books telling people that it doesn't make sense and it's nonsense and things aren't like that and stop being silly and do you know i've not revisited the alice books for a long time because you know truth be told i got a little sick of people having mad hatter's tea party red queen raffles or whatever it seems that for a while everything was Alice in Wonderland themed and goodness knows how many burlesque artists I've seen staple playing cards to corsets, you know? And so I got a little, (laughs) a little done with Alice. Um, So maybe I should revisit the books because uh, I'm not as familiar. As I said, Peter Pan is the main one for me. I I reread the Alice books uh, again. It's a long time ago now, but it's all just blurred into one continuous stream of memory and was also struck by uh, how well they work for an adult reader. Mm-hmm. There's kind of political satire going on. You know, there's the caucus race where they say everyone has won and all must have prizes. And you can read that on multiple levels. A faint memory is stirring now about the Mad Hatter's illustrations being based on Disraeli. Yeah, that's a faint memory stirring there. Again, I have to fact check it because goodness knows your listeners will. So, uh... both of them, yeah. Um, so, okay, rate your obsession from one to seven. Now, one is mildly curious, my level of interest in garden centres. I'm curious as to what goes on in them, to be honest. And seven is dangerously obsessed to the point it might jeopardise your sanity. Oh, I put myself on maybe a five. Healthy. A healthy five, yeah. If I'm in a if I'm in a shop, I always go straight to the kids section. I've got because I also like physical editions. Um, like I have like loads of physical editions of Peter Pan. And um, if there's an illustrator I especially like, um, like I don't know if I'll say this name right now because it's a European name, but um, Tove Janssen, the Moomins illustrator. Yeah. 
yeah. She um, she illustrated a, an edition of Alice in Wonderland that is so beautiful. So I bought that, and and so like I've got and I've got lots of because Peter Pan was a play before it was a book. So I've got lots of editions of the play with different illustrations in it. Some as old as like the twenties, some from the sixties. I've got a Mabel Lucy Atwell edition of Peter. So if I walk into a bookshop, I'm immediately drawn over, and I want to see and own the book, even though I might not necessarily read it. I just want to look at the pictures because. Yeah. I, I find the illustrations as pleasing as the story. Yeah. I was going to ask a question and it's gone out of my head. I was going to say, is this a nostalgia thing? Does this remind you of a simpler time or is this actually something you've kind of grown into? No, I think it's something that's just followed me through from childhood. And I'm going to keep going back to Peter Pan because it's the main one. But uh, Peter Pan has really evolved with me and I read it about once a year and every time I read it, I find something new in it. And there is, there's, uh, there's, I've got a copy of it here because I thought we might go down this. There's a brilliant quote from the end of Peter Pan. This is at the end of the original um, the original story before they added the When Wendy Grew Up chapter. So in um, some, some editions of Peter Pan, there's a chapter where Wendy grows up and Peter takes her daughter Jane to Neverland. But um, in the original ending, this, I think, sums up exactly how it feels to be a queer person in an oppressive, heteronormative society. So, like, listen, um, they, it's when the darling children have just returned to the nursery. There could not have been a lovelier sight, but there was none to see it except a little boy who was staring in at the window. He had ecstasies innumerable that other children can never know, but he was looking through the window at the one joy from which he must be forever barred. And like that, doesn't it hit you there, doesn't it? Wow. And when you're queer in a heteronorm- an oppressively heteronormative society, when adver- and I found this especially during the lockdown, advert after advert after advert of cisgendered heterosexual families sharing oven chips, having Zoom calls, making Sunday roast dinners, staying connected, being together, family, family, family. It was just, it was just the family agenda rammed down your throat. And that quote sprang to mind many times because you think like as, as a queer person, you, ha- you have your freedom from, you know, any kind of patriarchal constraints, any sort of constraints of the gender binary, any all of this stuff. But you're constantly reminded that you do not have the nuclear family set up that uh, other people do, which we are conditioned to be the dream, you know? So, and, and that lingers around. So this is why I think it's such a rich text because it is still speaking to me now uh, 33 years into my life as much as it did like the fourth or fifth year of my life. Yes, different families, entirely different families. That, that's also what Peter Pan's about, isn't it? Is finding your own family. And what, and, and what I love about it as well is that um, Neverland is different to every individual person. And uh, it's based, and it's somewhere between, how does he describe it? He describes it as being somewhere between being awake and being asleep. So that place where your mind goes to just before you fall asleep, yeah. he says that's the Neverland and you can hear the, the sea on its shore and everyone's Neverland is individual to them. So Wendy's Neverland has a pet wolf in it and John's Neverland has a lagoon with flamingos flying over it but Michael's Neverland because he's younger has a flamingo with lagoons flying over it and I I just there's lots of that in it which I think is really lovely and all the setups it's very of its time and it's very it's very classist as well. So uh, the Darling family are uh, a respectable family from Bloomsbury. And I would like to know, and this is, again, a rich text that's open to interpretation. I would like to know what Peter Pan would mean visiting poor children. 
You know, if, if Peter had gone to a poor family and taken them away to Neverland, what would that have looked like? But Neverland itself is just, um, it is a child's imagination, which is why there are pirates and Native Americans. And, and that's an interesting area as well as how the, how the, because uh, they're referred to in the, the book as, as redskins and, and Indians and all these things that we now know to be racial slurs. Um, and theatre productions tend to te- tackle it really well. The National did a production of it two, three years ago. And uh, Captain Hook was a woman, which was very good because apparently Jay and Barry originated the role as a woman, but the actor was changed before it was cast. And it was supposed to be Peter Pan or the boy who hated mothers and the relationship between Hook and Pan and the line where Hook uh, raises his hook and says, uh, I thank Peter for giving me this. And I, I wish every mother would uh, grant their child the gift of an iron claw instead of a right hand or something like that. And when a woman delivered that line and then the woman tries to kill Peter Pan, it's really chilling. And and it really drills into that idea of infanticide being like a a male thing. You know, in the same way that Myra Hindley is deemed to be the more demonic of the two because she was a woman and where was a maternal instinct, according to the press at the time. So there was all that going on with Hook. And then the the Native Americans, they changed to Princess Tiger Lily was... uh, she was leader of the wolves in the forest. And so they went for a very earthy kind of, uh, you know, connected to the ground sort of thing. And uh, and I think that's an interesting way to interpret the work because it is Victoriana. And so I think it was written just after the Victorian period, but it's still in that sort of Edwardian, very middle-class Bloomsbury, London, Albert Hall, statues, parks. So yeah, it's very problematic. <laughs> It's easy to be well-intentioned, uh, but still be reflective of the time you lived in, which was an intensely sort of colonialist, racist, to some extent misogynistic, uh, certainly homophobic in as much as it was even mentioned or thought about. So, yeah, I think it's interesting because you, you can try to do your best given what you've been dealt without seeing the bigger picture, which, of course, comes with history and time and, and the change of attitudes. Mm, absolutely. Because, um, uh, well, it's, like I said, it's just such a rich text, but then the joy is it seeing how people now interpret it. And there's been a lot of sequels written. I think I've never read any of them. There's Peter and the Star Catcher. That was one. Uh, Peter Pan in Scarlet. I think that was one. But I've never read any of them because I'm quite a purist. He never does grow up, does he? That's... No, he never grows up. He only grows up in the, uh, the Steven Spielberg film. Which is fun. I mean, I, I, this is something. If I was, I'm not remotely gatekeepery about it. If Peter wants to grow up in a, well, someone's story, that's fine. The story's where he doesn't still exist. <laughs> it doesn't uh, take those away. Firstly, who would you play if you played someone? Oh, Hook. A oh, Hook. I want to play Hook. Yeah. <laughs> I think everyone wants to play Hook. <laughs> yeah. Hook is uh, yeah. Years ago, with um, Paulus and, and various friends on the Battersea Barge, we did a production called Peter Pandemonium, and I was Hook, and it was very satisfying. <laughs> Actually, I say I say I want to play Hook. I kind of did, sort of, in a very roundabout way. We did a, a panto version of it at her upstairs called Peter Pansexual, and uh, and and I was Hook in it. Uh, but it was, you know, that was just self-indulgent fun. <laughs> well, that's the best kind of fun. Why shouldn't fun be self-indulgent? It's well, exactly. Um, so. Uh, would you write a children's book, do you think? No, I don't think I would. I think there's enough of them on the shelves. And uh, and I think it's good to have something that you don't turn into a job, you know? I, like, I, at the beginning of this, we started saying that, you know, I get away with playing dress-up for a living, but that has inadvertently and sort of inevitably, it has turned into sometimes dressing up is a chore. 
and uh, sometimes I don't feel like it and sometimes I don't want to turn my on and as I you know as I sort of hinted at at the, the beginning sometimes I want to dedicate more time to Frank and uh, pour something into that but I can't because everyone who books gigs wants Myra so Myra needs more watering you know and and so frank goes neglected and so i i think sometimes it's important to just enjoy something for leisure and don't make it work that's another thing i've found there's two things i've found with this kind of secret love section of the show and one of them is that when people start talking about their secret love they light up in a way that they do not when they're talking about their job all right yes and they all say something along those same lines is it would slightly spoil it to make money out of it or to make it my profession. I think George Orwell said book lovers should never work in a bookshop. I think he did a whole essay on it because he used to work in a bookshop and he said it took the love out of books. So maybe it's a similar thing. Uh, well, he had enough to be getting on with, didn't he? Yeah, he did, yeah. <laughs> I think those are all my questions, actually. This has been absolutely amazing. Oh, lovely. To bring things full circle, do you think your secret love does relate back to what you do in some way? It certainly influences. So, for example, you know, I talk about world building and um, the MDU, as I've sort of informally call it, is um, very much like, why Why isn't that like Oz? You know, it's its own. And like I said, it's a fictionalised, a sort of fictionalised rose-tinted version of the North that perhaps never existed, which, again, it's, you know, building a, a sort of parallel reality, which isn't entirely true. I mean, Myra exists in this world, but certainly the being aware of a world and what influences that world and what contains it and how it's structured has certainly influenced uh my job and also i think because i used to dress up as peter pan as well i used to i had a little green hat and i had a, a swing in the garden like a little a-frame swing and i used to tie my dressing gown belt around my waist and then tie it from the top of the swing and the first time my mum saw it she thought i was trying to hang myself and um and i used to fly i just used to hang myself from this swing and fly so you know again it's a plain dress up fantasizing losing yourself in your imagination which is i mean maybe being interested in these books fertilized the imagination yeah and fueled your dreams of flying that's it, yes. Yeah, I mean, that is, yeah, another parallel. No doubt that has got something to do with it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gareth. This has been completely gorgeous. Uh, and uh, here's to you and your flying dreams. Now, before we go, would you like to plug anything? <laughs> Just something about your, your intonation there was like, do you want to, do you want to plug, do you want to, <laughs> you're leaking a little, Gareth. Would you like to get that? <laughs> <laughs> um, just go to Myra's website and social media everything's advertised on there alright brilliant All right. lovely thank you very much for having me Dusty's Hideaway you've been listening to Dusty's Hideaway with me Dusty Linnets Sebastian Snuggles Angelique and this time round our gorgeous guest the wonderful Gareth Joyner if you like what you heard do please check out our websites and social media links in the description below Dusty's Hideaway, written and performed by Mark McInnes and Oliver Retter, produced by Mark McInnes, all rights reserved.